Good morning. So good to see you all this morning. Um, I want to open this morning just with a word of thanks uh, to all of you for coming out last Sunday evening and supporting the teens and showing your uh, love for them, those who are graduating, those who are moving on to college this year. Thank you for being uh, such a supportive church body who has encouraged them over the years, prayed for them, supported them, and thanks for showing that last Sunday evening. Uh, Man, that song, Oceans, that that song tears me up every time we sing it. When I um, first became a youth pastor and quit my job to do this, that song, which had just come out, was very popular. And in those moments where I was like in the fetal position in the corner of my office crying, uh, this song would be that, that thing I cling to, like, Lord, you've called me out into this great unknown where my feet, I'm definitely going to fail, and um, but my faith's going to be made stronger. And every time we sang that song, I still think uh, over the journey. And so that's just, that's not in my notes. That's just a personal thought while we were um, singing that song. Um, God is so good, so faithful. If you're a guest this morning, we especially want to welcome you. We are glad you're here. And just to bring you up to speed a little bit, we have been in a series on the book of Acts for the last couple of months. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 17 this morning. Last Sunday night, we talked about how the book of Acts opens with a statement uh, that after Christ rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples and he gave many convincing proofs that he was really alive. And this is a theme throughout the book of Acts. It's kind of the linchpin to the whole book. Christ is really alive and there's proof of it. And that's what you find Paul and Peter and the other disciples uh, commenting on in their, in their debates with the people they're trying to convince to follow Christ, this is their key point and argument. About a dozen times in the book it comes up, Christ really rose from the dead. God raised him from the dead. And to recap this morning, the last couple of chapters, to, to kind of bring us into where we are in chapter 17, the journey that Paul has been on specifically, uh, two chapters ago I believe it was, he was stoned by a mob and then they left him, dragged him out of the city and left him for dead. The chapter before that, he was put in prison and beaten with rods. So that's kind of been Paul's fun journey up until now. And before we get into Acts 17, I have a little trivia question for you. I'm not going to tell you the answer now. We'll get to it later, but I'll give you something to think about. It's a baseball trivia question. Sorry if you're not a baseball person, but I am. Uh, What do Cy Young, Nolan Ryan, and Ricky Henderson have in common? Besides the fact that they're all Hall of Fame, legendary baseball players. Okay, there's something else that they have in common. For bonus points, what in the world would that have to do with Paul and Silas? That can be your, you think on that for a moment. We'll jump into Acts 17. Uh, As Acts 17 opens, it says that as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. And then for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with the Jews there to tell them about Christ rising from the dead. And the phrase that stood out to me right away as we enter this chapter is the phrase, as was his custom. And there's two things I want to note about Paul's custom of going into the synagogue. Uh, The first is that Paul is still effectively a practicing Jew. The New Testament Christians were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Peter was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. um, And they went into the synagogue and worshipped. Now, they're spreading the gospel message to anybody and everybody. The Greeks, the Gentiles, anybody, men, women, slaves, free, barbarians, everybody gets to hear it. But these guys are still... They're Jewish people. They've been born and raised Jewish, and so they continue to go into the synagogue as they have done. And uh, it would be some time before the distinction of Jewish Christian 
would morph to Christians and Jews. So for now, Paul's still going into the synagogue. But the other thing he is doing, besides observing the custom, is we see that Paul has developed a pattern. It's his custom to go and tell people that Christ has really risen from the dead and reason with the people there and show them with their own scriptures. Jesus was really the Messiah and he rose from the dead. This is the good news that he's trying to convey to the people. And in this chapter, Acts 17, we have kind of three unique exchanges that take place in three different cities, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. In Thessalonica, as was his custom, Paul goes in and reasons with the Jews there for three Sabbaths. And some were persuaded, including God-fearing Greeks and prominent women. But then it says, the Jews rounded up bad characters from the marketplace and started a riot. If you don't ever laugh or chuckle when you read the Bible, can I challenge that you might not be using your imagination enough when you read the Word of God? I'm sure this situation is not funny to Paul, but when I read the Word, I think there are situations that are humorous to me. Like, Paul's in the synagogue talking to him, the Jews like, we're going to go to the marketplace, we're going to round up some thugs, and we're going to come back, and we're going to beat Paul up. Like, I think it's just a funny way of of going about things and that it's mentioned in scripture and so these guys show up paul hits the road and so they grab his buddy jason who who was a believer and they they go and they beat him up jason yeah not that jason another jason um so they beat up jason because they don't have anybody else so they attack him meanwhile paul sneaks out of the city under the cover of nightfall and moves on to berea a town about 50 miles away okay once again as was his custom Paul enters the synagogue in Berea, and he begins to reason with the people in the synagogue. Now, Scripture tells us that the people in Berea were not as closed-minded as the people in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. In fact, verse 12 says that as a result, many Jews believed, as did many prominent Greek women and men. This is awesome. Uh, Can you imagine the conversation that maybe Paul and Silas are having at this point and think, hey, can you believe it, the people here? They're really listening to us, man. This isn't like Thessalonica. These guys, are, they're eager to learn and we're explaining it and they're believing. This is fantastic. It's all paying off. Then verse 13 says, But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there and stirred up trouble. So this mob that they, they you know, assembled in Thessalonica travels 50 miles, not by interstate, but by, I don't know, horseback carriage, however they travel, and 50 miles to show up in Berea to stop Paul again. Ugh. Now, how is, how is Paul feeling? We, we just started making progress here. We got, we got to go. On to the next place. So the believers escort Paul away, and they move on to the city of Athens. Upon arrival in Athens, initially... Paul takes the same approach. He shows up, he goes into the synagogue, and he begins to teach. But he is struck and disheartened by the number of idols that are present in the city of Athens. And it it, it challenges his soul. And so he ends up going into the marketplace in Athens. And I was doing a little research on the marketplace in Athens, and it... One of the commentators said it's, it's like this, this great mall way, this exchange of ideas. People sit around, Greek philosophers of Athens swapping ideas, looking for the, the newest, latest idea, these Epicureans, these Stoics, they're exchanging thoughts and ideas. That's kind of what they did. And 
I don't know, it'd be like maybe if we jumped on some philosophy internet forum and all these people are like, check this out, they're, they're swapping the latest and greatest. I don't know. So Paul arrives there and he's, he decides to preach to the people. And when he does so, he takes a different approach because he's no longer in the synagogue at Thessalonica or the synagogue of Berea or even the synagogue at Athens. He's moved on to just the marketplace with the Epicureans, the Stoics, the Greek philosophers. And so instead of using the Old Testament scriptures to try to talk about Jesus being Messiah because they don't, they don't care anything about that, he tries to talk to them about the one true God, and he does so on their terms. He, he speaks to them uh, even using and quoting uh, their own philosophers and their own poets to attempt to reach these people. And the reaction of some of the people is like this. They say, what is this babbler talking about? One commentator I read said that um, the people regarded Paul as a country bumpkin. Um, here he is in Athens in this great mallway and this exchange of ideas, and he's coming, he's proclaiming this thing, and they're like, what's this, what's this babbler on about this country guy talking about? I don't know what he's on about. Uh, but others decide to listen to him, so he's, he's got an audience, and they're listening to him. But when he finally gets to the resurrection of the dead, which, again, this is the key point throughout the book of Acts, that Jesus really rose from the dead. This is the whole point. And when he gets to that, it says that the people sneered at him. Resurrection of the dead. This country bumpkin, this babbler is, I don't know what he's on about. They sneered at him. Now, if I'm Paul, sometimes I like to pretend, what what if I was the person here? What would my reaction have been? What am I feeling at this point in time? If it was me, I'd be having a conversation like God right about this point in time. Lord, I, I obeyed you and I preached, and the people stoned me and left me for dead. Then I went on and preached some more, and the people threw me in prison, and they beat me with rods. Lord, I obeyed you, and I went to Thessalonica, and I preached there, and they rounded up a mob and tried to beat me, and they beat up Jason. Lord, I obeyed you, and I went on to Berea, and I preached again, and I was making progress, and that crowd, they followed me 50 miles to try to beat me up again. And now I'm here in Athens, I've come to this mall where I'm trying to proclaim to the people, and, and they're sneering at me. That's five. That's five strikes, God. Clearly, clearly I misunderstood the call on God's call on my life. I'm not cut out to be a missionary. I'm not doing this. I think Barnabas is a lot better at this. He's a lot more patient with people. Barnabas can come deal with these people. I'm out. I'm going to go do something else, God. Luke doesn't tell us exactly how Paul might be feeling or what his inner monologue is. But sometimes I like to imagine, what, how would I react in this situation? And I see a pattern of uh, opposition, discomfort, injustice. Uh, and if it was me, I would feel like a failure in those situations. Like, every step I take, this is, this is falling apart. I keep having to move on right before I see fruit happen. However, if we were to look at those passages through a different lens, we would see some fruit that has come out of these events. In Thessalonica, a large number of God-fearing Greeks believed, as well as a few prominent women. In Berea, many believed, including a pro- prominent Greek women and Greek men. In Athens, some sneered at him, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And some believed, including Dionysius and Damaris. It lists them by name. So despite the failures and the discomfort and the injustices that Paul has experienced, 
you start seeing a pattern of people believing here and there along the way. Not just unnamed people. Oh, some Greeks, some Jews, some women, some men. But believers by name, Dionysius, Damaris. But it seems like everywhere Paul goes, this failure and success or this opposition and fruit seem to go hand in hand and follow him wherever he goes. Okay, back to my trivia question that I asked you earlier. Cy Young, Ricky Henderson, and Nolan Ryan are three people who have what are considered to be unbreakable records in baseball. Nobody is going to touch these records. Cy Young has 511 wins as a pitcher. Nobody will come close to that. He's 100 ahead of anybody in history. Of active players, nobody has more than 270. It's just not even close. Nolan Ryan has, a, for career, over 5,700 strikeouts. That's over 800 more than the nearest person, Randy Johnson. Ricky Henderson has over 1,400 stolen bases in his career. That's far and away the most of anyone. Let, let me just put that one in perspective for a moment, how unbreakable that record is. In order to do that, you would have to average 70 stolen bases for 20 years. Right? 70 times 20 is 14. Just trust me if, if, you don't, if you don't see the math. Trust me. 70 a year for 20 years. Okay. To put it in perspective, between 2000 and 2009, the league leader in steals each year, which were different people, not even the same person, but the, league, the best of the best every year only averaged 64 steals a year. So for one person to average 70 a year for 20 years, it's, it's really unthinkable the way the game is played today. All right. I'm talking about baseball. Some of you are like, get back to the Bible. I don't understand baseball. Okay, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting. Here, here's, 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 I'm going to get there, but here's, here's the point. These three guys also hold three other unbreakable records that nobody really talks about. For Cy Young, it's his 316 losses as a pitcher. Nobody else has that many. Nolan Ryan has almost 2,800 walks as a pitcher. That is Far and away the most of it. It's over a 1,000 more than the next closest guy. It's just out of sight. Ricky Henderson has the record for the most failed stolen base attempts. He's been caught stealing more than anybody else in the game. And just like these guys had to risk that to become legends in the game, they had to fail many, many times. They had to at least try. Uh, they have attained this legendary status in, in the game. They're Hall of Famers, all of them. Similarly, for you basketball people, LeBron James is going to take a lot of heat, a lot of flack for getting swept in the finals a second time. But when it's all said and done, he will be remembered as one of the greatest players that ever played the game. People might criticize him, but he's still one of the best. It's undeniable. And just as these individuals in the sporting world experienced failure along the way, they had to risk something in order to attain their greatness we see this in Paul's life, a pattern of facing opposition, facing discomfort, facing injustice, facing what some might consider to be failure in order to receive the lasting fruit, in order to see that growth take place. And I wonder, both personally and then as a church, are we willing to try enough to fail or experience discomfort or experience opposition in order to see long-term fruit? Because I think there are those who would gladly trade away long-term fruit if it meant we did not have to face any, no discomfort, no opposition, no failure now. Just leave it as it is. I'll, I'll make that trade. 
There's two conversations I had this week uh, with other friends from other churches that really illustrated this point and drove it home to me. Uh, sometimes God just, while, I'm work, while you're working on a sermon, God just provides these things and they kind of fall into your lap. And so I was working on a sermon and I'm having a conversation with a pastor friend who used to be at a, a much smaller church that was really struggling. They were thinking maybe they were going to have to close. And so the church brought in a consultant to meet with the board and try to put them back on the right track. And the consultant said, well, what would happen if Sunday morning you walked into the sanctuary and there were five new families there? And he said that one of the ladies on the board put her head in her hands and said, oh, I would feel like I lost my church. I would feel like I lost my church. Sometimes we don't want to change things, don't want to experience the discomfort it might take to see that lasting fruit. Similarly, I was having a separate conversation a couple days later with a friend at a church, and he said, yeah, the youth pastor really got gung-ho about uh, reaching different people in our community and bussing kids in and, and expanding the youth group. And he started doing that, and then it brought in this different a group of kids in the youth group, and some parents pulled him aside and said, hey, could you, it's great what you're doing, but do you think you could do that on a different night or have youth group on a different night? Because that's kind of conflicting with what our kids, like, this is crazy. Um, but sometimes we, we don't care much about the long-term fruit if it's going to mean a shake-up on our end, whether it's discomfort or failure or opposition or injustice. Some people would gladly trade away future fruit if it meant we could keep things like it is. But there's another thing about it, too. It's this, we have this stigma about failure, this sense that failure is bad, therefore we don't want to, we don't want to admit failure, we don't want to acknowledge failure. I was watching an interview with an actor this, this week, and the interviewer said, what can you tell kids out there about chasing their dreams and, and failure along the way? And uh, the actor just kind of brushed it off. He said, I... Failure, that's just, that's just part of the game. He said, if you are not even trying hard enough to experience failure, then, then what are you doing? If you're not trying enough to fail, you're probably not making any progress at all. And let me, let me apply this in two different areas. We talked about how it applies in our church context. Okay, what about personally? Um, there's probably a lot of ways it applies, but there's two that really stood out to me this week as we talk about Ways we experience failure or conflict, opposition, injustice, discomfort in our own lives, uh, but in a sense embracing that for the sake of long-term fruit. One is in our our interpersonal relationships, uh, and especially in marriage. Um, I love my wife more, more than anybody. If I was to make a list of the three people who have made me the most angry in my life, my wife's probably on the list. But, but, um, the long-lasting fruit of marriage is worth working through the, and I've probably made her the most mad too, it's not, it's not just her, it's, um, but the long-lasting fruit of marriage is worth going through the failures, the challenges along the way, even though they're really difficult. Uh, what if Paul had said, this, this is too tough, I'm, I'm trying to reach these people, nobody's listening, I'm getting beaten up, they're stoning me, they're rounding up mobs, I'm obviously not cut out for this. I'm gone. In the same way, the stigma of failure or an un- unrealistic expectations uh, causes us to avoid failure and say, well, we've got this myth of the perfect 
marriage or the perfect interpersonal relationship. So when there is conflict or someone makes us mad, it's easier to, to cut tail and run than it is to actually work through and endure those things. Oh, man, that first year of marriage is something. Uh, but we're here. But grace God. God is good. <laughs> um, another place I see this play out a lot, this, the, the, the issue with the stigma of failure as we perceive it to be failure. As youth pastor, one of the things I get to tackle head-on or have to tackle head-on is students who are wrestling through habitual sins or uh, things that have held them down for a long time, things that have held them in sin for a long time, whether it be addictive behaviors, patterns, self-harm, substance abuse, pornography. Uh, these are things we have to wrestle with. And it's not just teens, it's, it's adults as well. Uh, but since I'm the youth pastor, this is the arena I work in. And trying to think through this, the issue with this stigma on failure and and an unrealistic expectation is that I think it gives the devil a foothold to hold us down with more guilt and shame. Because just about every testimony I've, I've heard or seen or talked to people, when you're dealing especially with addictive behaviors, the story almost always goes something like this. I got fed up, so I, I tried to get free of this, and I failed. And I tried some more, and I failed. And I gave up for a while, and then I got fed up again, so I tried, I tried to give up, you know, get rid of this, and I failed. And then I graduated from high school. I went, decided to go to, I was going to college. I'm like, oh, I've got to clean up my act now. I'm an adult. And I tried again, and I failed some more. And then uh, college didn't really do much. And then I got out of college, and I was like, well, now I'm a real adult. Now I really need to get a hold of this thing. So I, I tried to clean up my act, and I failed some more. And I tried, and I failed. And then I started dating this girl, so I tried to clean up my act again. And then I, you know, I tried, and I failed, and I tried, and I failed. And we got married, and I was like, oh, I really need to clean up my act now. And then I had kids, and I, really, I tried, and I failed, and I tried, and I failed. And then one day, and then one day, it stopped. That's a testimony that I hear so frequently from people who have overcome addictive behaviors. Now, I absolutely believe that God can heal and redeem and, and, and restore in, in an instant. Absolutely. But so often I hear the story that is this long journey of the ups and downs, freedom, failure, freedom, slavery, freedom, slavery. So tying this into Paul and the journey that Paul's facing where he might be perceived as failure or facing these hardships, these injustices, for the person struggling through sin, I think the person that is, that is torn up, that is remorseful because they're in this cycle, they recognize they're in this cycle, but they're remorseful that they're in it. I think that's actually the person that's on a trajectory towards that lasting freedom, towards that lasting fruit. And if we don't allow failure or those circumstances to, to accept that that's a reality, that just lets the devil hold us down. It's like the guilt, the shame... You, just, you might as well give up because you've got to be perfect. And if we as a church say, no, the church is for broken people. That's the whole point, not the perfect person. We free people to be able to begin to take that journey towards recovery, towards freedom. I don't know where your source of discomfort or injustice or opposition or failure comes from. It may be external, some, like in Paul's case, it's an external force acting on him at every step of the way. For others, it's, it's an internal failure or a mistake or a sin that causes that, that sense of failure. 
If it's an external force, consider, one, the Apostle Paul, uh, two, a guy in the Old Testament named Joseph, who was unjustly betrayed by his brothers, then by his master, and then he rotted in a prison cell for a couple of years. He did nothing wrong, but God eventually redeemed his story. Uh, Consider Jesus himself, who was betrayed by Judas, was denied by Peter, and then effectively abandoned by his disciples when things got tough. If the source of a sense of failure or injustice or whatever is internal because of a personal failure, personal sin, personal mistake, consider David who made a lot of mistakes and God continued to redeem his life. Consider Joshua who was called to be leader of Israel but still failed to consult God one time and made a pretty big mistake for the nation, but God redeemed his story as well. And then as we read the book of Acts, Consider Peter's life, because Peter just can never get things together. He's denying his Savior one minute, he's walking on water, then he's sinking, and then he's, even in the New Testament, Paul has to correct his behaviors, because Peter just keeps making mistakes, but God continues to build his church on Peter, the rock. In our household, there are two phrases that we come back to over and over and over again. It's, it's this, that God redeems all things, and that nothing is wasted in God's economy. God redeems all things, and nothing is wasted in God's economy. God has a way of taking even failure, even sin, and redeeming it. Not to say that he willed those things, not to say that that's, that's his ideal plan for your life, but the miraculous thing about this is if we take those things and surrender them to God, even if it's external opposition, injustices we're facing, and we say, God, I want your redemptive work to apply this situation, redeem this story, for the sake of lasting fruit, God has a way of taking that saying, yeah, that's not what I wanted for you, but let me take that story and let me begin to redeem it. Let me begin to apply my grace onto that situation. But for that to work, we have to be able to acknowledge those things and say, yeah, I'm experiencing failure here or I'm experiencing injustice, opposition, discomfort, and I need God's redemptive work in that area.